The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Good morning. Um, Like Scott said, my name is Leah Moser, and I work in the student ministry. Um, Our scripture today is from Mark 1, 1 through 4, and verses 9 through 13. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. The spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thank you, Deanne. Well, good morning and happy 2021 to all of you tuning in, uh, clicking in, or whatever else. Uh, My name is Paul Lim, and I've been here since 2016, serving as the scholar in residence for the church, and since last year, serving as the senior advisor and teacher for the National Institute for Faith and Work. My full-time job profession is as a professor at Vanderbilt where I teach history of Christianity with particular attention to post-Reformation Europe and contemporary global Christianity. Man, what a year 2020 has been, and I could never have. In fact, none of you, none of us could have written the scenario in the way that we had hoped or planned. So I really do hope and pray that year 2021 would be marked by a greater awareness of Jesus in our life, not as a mere figment of imagination, but as an abiding, living reality. And that through the power that comes from the reality of union with Christ, you and I can live in the present moment, anchor on the historical and historic past of our Christ's work, and looking forward into the future, not with craven fear, but with true hope and faith and love, which can only the love of the triune God can provide. So I have the pleasure and privilege to kick off our new sermon series on the Gospel of Mark about Jesus. As you have just read from Mark chapter one, it tells us three important aspects of Jesus' identity and story, and as well our own identity and story. So today's sermon is entitled, Jesus, Our Brother. So I was telling someone recently that I have to preach on the first day of first Sunday of January, and he asked me if I would share with him and others who are watching in person or online what's been on my Spotify playlist as I prepare the sermon. So I guess I've done it a few times, so some people may be curious. I'll share with you a couple of these songs in a minute. So my wife encouraged us recently, my son and me, one night that we should watch Amadeus, a life story with a good deal of embellishment about Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. So after watching the movie, I added a bunch of Mozart's arias from a few of his operas, especially Marriage of Figaro and Magic Flute. So it's a bit different from my usual U2, Kendrick Lamar, 
Lauren Daigle, Louis Armstrong, Public Enemy, or Sia, but it's still music, perhaps not better, definitely not worse. So the two songs that we'll talk about today are Sularia from The Marriage of Figaro and A Song of Absolution and Forgiveness from the Same and Lauren Daigle's song, You Say. More on them in due course, of course, so let's jump right ahead. So from today's text, we will develop three points and three related corollary points. Here's why. Throughout the Gospel of Mark, his burden of proof is to show how to phrase Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as he introduces the Gospel right away, how that phrase can be true. He will show that Jesus was not only truly human, but also truly divine. For Mark, the Gospel writer, it, has not, it was not going to be enough to have Jesus presented as only human, however great he might have been, nor will it suffice to have Jesus as only divine, for in the middle of both we see the true identity, beauty, and goodness of Christ, the Messiah, the consolation of Israel, and the Redeemer of the world. In other words, we will see the three points of Jesus as our brother and three points of Christ as our Lord, three points of his humanity, three points of his divinity. So let's jump right ahead. Jesus as a brother identifies with us. He understands, he participates, and he takes our place as substitute. And Jesus our Lord shows God to us, God's identity as one who is the Lord of Scripture, the one who has always existed in three, and the God who will provide, prove victorious over Satan. So the first point is, Jesus, uh, Jesus a brother's identification with the lost human condition. Jesus' identification with the human, the lost human condition, and that related point then is Jesus, our Lord's identity as fulfillment of Israel's scriptures. So Jesus, our brother's identification with our lost condition, we see that in verses 1 through 4 and also in verse 9. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as he says right at the outset, you know, what, you know that Mark's gospel is the shortest one among all four gospels? So he minces no words, wastes no time to get to the point. So he tells us that his account is to show that Jesus was the Son of God. He takes us to the time of Isaiah. Not any Isaiah, but Isaiah the prophet. Meaning he was to tell both in the foretelling or telling ahead and foretelling or telling it straight about the future destiny of Israel. That was what Isaiah the prophet was about, and we have studied that in our last series. And he connects us with the story of John the Baptist, who was a contemporary of Jesus. More on that in a second. Notice with me, though, in verse 4. John the Baptist came and began to baptize, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And boom, in verse 9, it tells us that Jesus came and got baptized by John. So the first point is Jesus' identification with the lost human condition. Notice in verse 2, Isaiah's, Isaiah's prophecy was about the messenger who prepared the way of the Lord and the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. The role of John the Baptist was to show us our true condition of being in desperate need for repentance and forgiveness of sins. Right? So the role of John the Baptist was to show how lost we are without that ritual or rite and sacrament of baptism that signifies true repentance and also enactment of divine grace. First of all, we need to see how we have gone the wrong way, 
Thus our need for a change of mind, metanoia, which is a Greek word for repentance, which is literally changing of mind and forgiveness of sins. Not only do we need to recognize what is wrong, but we need someone to come and cleanse us with forgiveness. The act of baptism by Jesus was one powerful symbol of Jesus' identification with our lost condition. Standing in need of changing our mind about our present status and also receiving the forgiveness that we cannot confer upon ourselves. You see, I think some of the first century or second century readers of the account of Jesus' baptism must have asked, wait a minute, if Jesus was really sinless, why did he need to be baptized? Right? I mean, you might wonder the same thing because baptism was for a specific purpose of forgiveness of sins. Matthew's gospel, the gospel that comes before Mark, offers that supplementary information as a way of quenching the theological thirst of the people because in Matthew 3, verses 14 and 15, it tells us that J.B., John the Baptist, asked J.C., Jesus Christ, I need to be baptized by you, and why do you come to me? You hear that? So J.B. asked, hey, there's something wrong here because I need to be baptized by you, but you're coming to me. And his response, Jesus' response was that, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this in order to fulfill all righteousness. Then John the Baptist consented. John the Baptist knew the incongruity and oddity of Jesus about whom Isaiah had prophesied being baptized for the forgiveness of sins. God does not sin, so why would the Son of God need to be baptized? So we see that the gospel writers are very clear about developing the theology of representation, identification, and substitution. Here we see Jesus, our brother, identifies with our need for forgiveness of sins, indeed the human condition of lostness. Then the flip side of the same coin about Jesus' identification and identity is this. Here we see Jesus' divinity as the fulfiller of Israel's scriptures. So we see that in verses 2 and 3, where we have a compilation of prophecies, one from Malachi 3.1, I'll send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, and the other one from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. The real kicker is why on earth would this fulfillment of Isaiah prophecy stand with other people to be baptized? Baptism is only for the losers, remember? Losers to sin. Yet we see that the Lord about whom it had been foretold in Israel's prophetic tradition would come in lowly and meek fashion, and that would be a major surprise. So there are two levels of fulfillment here. Level number one is how the messenger before who will prepare your way was none other than John the Baptist, or as my Episcopalian friends would like to say, John the Baptizer, because John the Baptizer is much more inclusive than Baptist's denomination. You take your pick, but you get what I mean. So level one is a messenger who came before the messianic figure named John the Baptizer. Level two is how this text shows that he was preparing the way of the Lord, the one who will someday proclaim himself to be the way and the Lord himself. Then the Lord whose ways J.B. was preparing was the one who was baptized by John. So the obvious response from the readers would have been, huh, what? Who is this Lord uh, who gets baptized? We don't understand. 
The intensity of interest to read further, I think, would have been kicked up a few notches now because the Lord about whom the scriptures had written is now baptized by John the Baptist. And so the, the level of intrigue is all the more increased. So let's move on to the second point and related point now then. So the second point is Jesus' identification with our need for approval. And the second related point is Jesus, our Lord's identity as revealer of God as Trinity. That's a mouthful, so we'll unpack it in just a few minutes. So we see those two things in verses 11 and 12. We see, first of all, the spectacular scene of Jesus' baptism, perhaps witnessed to by John the Baptist and few others who were there to have their sins washed. So he gets baptized, namely Jesus, and Jesus hears the word from heaven, the word from God, and Jesus saw the Spirit descending on him like a dove. You see another place that is familiar to this of God and the Spirit being mentioned together is in a setting like this is none other than Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis 1, 2, chapter 1, verse 2, we read that the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And one of the best-known medieval Jewish commentators was a rabbi named Rashi, and he wrote these words in his commentary on Genesis 1, 2 text. Rashi writes, The throne of divine glory was standing in space, hovering over the face of the waters by the breath of the mouth of the Holy One. Blessed be he, and by his command, even as a dove hovers over its nest. The language of a dove hovering over its nest and the picture of a dove descending on Jesus. What is the significance? I think what Mark is signaling are two things among others. One, we see God's work of new creation starting with Jesus. In Genesis 1, it was God's work of creation itself. In Mark 1, what you see is the God's work of recreation. God the Father speaking, the spirit of dove descending upon the one who is now receiving the benediction and the word himself. Number two, we see God's identity as being revealed as the same one in Genesis 1 as in the baptism of Jesus. God, God's word, God's spirit were involved as God said, let there be light in Genesis 1.1 and God's spirit was hovering over the waters in the same way. In the same way, we see God in Mark 1 speaking here and God's spirit coming down with an interesting twist. We see Jesus, who is being baptized, but who will also be identified in the Gospel of John as the Word of God, the Word from God, the Word as God, receiving the benediction, which is literally, if you've been coming here and worshiping with us for a while, we know and we have shared with you that the benediction, the Word itself, means the good Word. So what is the content of that good Word? Right? Jesus is baptized, heaven opens, the Spirit comes down, and he hears, you are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. You're my son whom I love. You're my beloved son, and with you, I am well pleased. Well, let me ask you, really, did Jesus need to hear that for himself? What's the purpose of Jesus hearing these words? I would say among others, and more importantly than anything else, it is for us and for our insecurity and for our salvation. Jesus' identification with our need for approval. Here's Jesus being approved. Beloved, here is a truth worth remembering again and again. If you say, I belong to Jesus, then one God, we need to remember this. When God the Father sees you, God will always and only see you as you're in Jesus. 
That's why for Paul, the phrase in Christ was the most beautiful phrase in all of his letters because of your positionality in Jesus. You're in him, so when God sees you, God sees Christ who sees you in Christ. He's approved, my son, my beloved one, and I am well pleased. I thought about that. How often do I hear that you are my something, my beloved something, and with you I am well pleased? You know what, friends, as we start this year, 2021, we need to remember that. We need to remember that Jesus identifies with our need for approval, and the ultimate and the only approval that matters throughout eternity is when Jesus hears these words, you are my beloved son, you are my beloved daughter, with you I am pleased. Those words ought to be applied to us in our life, in our positions, in our pursuits. That's not all there is, though. This text also shows Jesus our Lord's identity as revealer of God as Trinity. We see God speaking. We see God the Spirit as dove descending. We see this individual whose identity we don't really know yet receiving the blessing. Among other things, we see that if God had existed in that holy company before, that we know is from eternity past, and there was community. So in that classical Christian tradition, we confess God as triune. That means from eternity, before anything at all came to be, before anything, before time and space existed, before this entire cosmos came into being, there was God, and God was always in that perfect harmony and felicity and joy and love that God was not some kind of solitary divine monad, but rather God who had existed in the company of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that from eternity past there was an overflow of love, and all of God's external act was founded on and headed toward that love. God did not create the world or the universe because God was bored, nor was it because God would not be God without creation. So God did, so it's not that God became further godded with creation. That's complete nonsense. So here we see in this text, Jesus as the revealer of God's identity as Trinity. God the Father speaks, God the Spirit descends, God the Word receives that blessing and becomes himself that Word and the blessing itself. Jesus shows the source and destiny of love. So as I mentioned to you, one of the songs I've been listening to a lot these days uh, is this uh, uh, aria from uh, Mozart's Marriage of Figaro. It's a song called Solaria. You might know this song, I think, from one of my favorite, one of maybe yours too, one of my favorite movies of all time, Shawshank Redemption. There's one scene where Dufresne, Andy Dufresne, locks the door on the prison guard, and he's kind of being a well-behaved prison prisoner, so he gets a lot of privileges, and he locks the guy in the bathroom, and he starts playing the record phonograph, and if you don't know what I'm talking about, middle school students, you should ask your parents. There's a thing called phonograph, and he used to play music going round and round and round. And this song comes out of nowhere, and the entire prison field and cells are inundated with the beauty of the song. As the song continues, everyone looks completely mesmerized and captured by something bigger than themselves. Maybe like a dove, they can flutter away. At that moment, Morgan Freeman, a.k.a. the voice of God, speaks these words that are so powerful to me. He says, I have no idea to this day what those two Italian ladies are singing about. Truth is, I don't want to know. Some things are best left unsaid. 
I like to think that they were singing about something so beautiful it can't be expressed in words. It makes your heart ache because of it. I tell you, those voices soared higher and farther than anybody in a great place there to dream. It was like some beautiful bird flapped into our drab little cage and made these walls dissolve away. And for the briefest of moments, every last man in Shoshank fell free. The approval, the beauty of approval, beauty of forgiveness, beauty of an aria from an opera. Jesus is the one who is the person who identifies with our need for approval, our desire for forgiveness. That leads me to my third and final point. The third point is Jesus, our brother's identification with our struggles in life. And the related point is Jesus, our Lord's identity as victor over Satan's temptations. So Jesus, our brother's identification with our struggles in life. We see that in verses 12 and 13. So I told you that Mark's gospel is really short. He almost, after writing the, his gospel, somebody else needed to come and offer a commentary. Like, okay, this one Mark meant when he said these things because his uh, gospel is marked with very, very uh, kind of terse and kind of you know, not many words are used. And it's just really kind of very, very accelerated pace of rendering the account of Jesus Christ. We see these things in verses 12 and 13. 40 days in the wilderness, the writer says, the reader is getting the picture, catching on to the significance of Jesus' mission. Why did he do that? Who spent 40 days in the wilderness before? Right? That, these are important questions for the readers of Mark's gospel then and also for now. Here's an important theological principle to remember. Jesus, our substitute. Jesus, a brother, becomes our Jesus, the substitute. Not as the substitute teacher in Key and Peele's famous skit about a substitute teacher, but Jesus as one who identifies with our lost condition and desperate need for approval from God and that he takes our place and our curse and our lost condition and goes into the wilderness for 40 days, just as Moses spent 40 days with the Lord, the one greater than Moses spent 40 days with Satan. Think about that. Moses spent 40 days with God, Jesus spent 40 days with Satan. Of, you know, accompanied by angels and so fighting against him and ultimately triumphing over him as a way of signaling the ultimate victory that has already been accomplished and thus yet to come, but already assured here. Furthermore, the number 40 has quite a lot of significance in the Old Testament, in, in Israel's scriptures. 40 years of wilderness experience of Israel. So Jesus is often portrayed as Jesus, the, the prophet greater than Moses, but also Jesus in his own life typified the experiences of and the narrative of the people of Israel. So in the 40 years of wilderness experience of uh, Israel, they experienced lots of temptations and they succumbed to almost all of them. Jesus' temptation narrative teaches us something quite the opposite. Jesus, our substitute, where we could not do what we were expected to do and obliged to do, Jesus, our substitute, does. Where we fail, Jesus does not fail. And where we fail to oblige and offer up perfect obedience, uh, Jesus does in our stead. So Hebrews 2, uh, 14 and 15, but indeed the overall chapter, presents a very interesting Christology or view of uh, teachings about Jesus. And that is what is called Christus Victor, Jesus the Victor. And it says in Hebrews 2, 14, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, 
and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Now, friends, you might say, oh, that's just an antiquated notion from first century. No, 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 it is not just first century, all right? It is right here with us, even in 2021. We have the fear of death. We do, in various ways, in various guises. And yet the only difference is, who are you anchoring your experience, forthcoming experience of death with? And that is the difference because the writer of Hebrews says, you know, the reason why the Son of God became human flesh was through his life and death, he would defeat the power of him who holds the power of death over all, all of us as a dangling thing, always scaring us and making us feel like, oh man, you know, I'm really scared to exist. And the whole purpose of Jesus is Christus Victor. Jesus who will come and crush the head of the serpent as the first prophecy of all time was none other than Genesis 3.15. The curse upon the serpent was going to be a blessing upon the, the, the children of Adam. The great second and greater Adam named Jesus came and crushed the head of the serpent and now we follow Jesus uh, as our victor. As our, um, he identifies with our struggles in life. And let's think about that. I mean, in Matthew's gospel, he further elaborates on the specifics of the temptation. So Jesus is tempted for 40 days. And there are three different types of temptations that come. And for the whole purpose of this temptation narrative, in my opinion, is to really show us and share with us the fact that Jesus, our brother, really indeed identifies with our struggles in life. And to me, that is such a powerful, powerful figure. That he's not only going to teach us, he's not only going to say, hey, just follow that rule and you'll be okay. He says, you know what, I'm actually going to be that rule keeper and I'm actually going to carry you when you cannot carry yourself. When you're down in the ditch, I'm going to come in as the good Samaritan and bandage you, carry you, check you into a motel and make sure that when there's you know, leftover bill to pay, I'll come and pay. So it's a complete whole uh, that's going to cover to from beginning to end, I am going to provide that insurance and assurance for you. Jesus is the one who has provided that because he identifies with our struggles in life. I don't know about you, but as we close, I need to uh, kind of share this with all of us. I don't know where you are or who you are and what you do or don't do. Yet I do know this. 2020, the year 2020, has been a struggle. Struggle for all of us. Struggle for me, struggle for you in various ways. Sometimes emotionally, sometimes financially, sometimes just familially, sometimes relationally. A lot of these things are ever near and present with us. Although the present news and reality of the vaccines available is a somewhat of a solace. I don't know how many of us are vaccinated right now. And we're kind of living in that sort of a limbo experience. And so it is absolutely crucial for us to remember that Jesus, our brother, identifies with our struggles in life. And you say, Paul, you don't know me. I say, yeah, but I'll tell you, you don't know Jesus. You might say, Paul, you have no idea. No, no, I, I say, I know, but I want you to know Jesus. He actually knows the words that are in your mind even before they're even conceived of in your mind. He's the one who actually reveals our God's identity as victory over, victor over Satan's temptations. You and I will have many temptations, struggles, and tribulations and troubles, and yet Jesus is ever near us and with us. Let me close with uh, these words from Lauren Daigle's song, You Say, and because I've 
heard that, you know, and I, and I think I probably shared it with you in one of the sermons last year. And this chorus line is really powerful, at least for me, and I think for many of us. You say, I am loved. So let's say God is saying, I am loved when I cannot feel a thing. You say, I am strong when I think I am weak. And you say, I am held when I am falling short. And when I don't belong, oh, you say, I am yours. And I believe, oh, I believe. What you say of me, I believe. Friends, beloved, what God says of me, I believe. I need to believe that I am approved, that I am beloved, that I am well-pleased in the sight of God because of who Christ is, our brother, our substitute, the fulfillment of Scripture, and the Christus victor, the one who crushed the head of the serpent, who is ever near us and within us and is beckoning us now to himself, And so what he says of me, I will choose to believe in the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray together. Gracious God and glorious Lord, we thank you for this gospel narrative, short and punchy and to the point, that Jesus came, having been foretold in Israel's scriptures, and having identified with our lostness, he was baptized for the forgiveness of sins, though he knew no sin himself. And Lord, we thank you that you also reveal yourself as the one who is three in eternity. And through that good word, we know that we are indeed in Jesus. Thus, we are beloved and well-pleased in God. We also know that through our vicissitudes of life and all the experiences of temptations and trials and tribulations and failures, you are within us and around us encouraging us, picking us up, and equipping us for the task at hand, Lord. We thank you for being with us in our journey. We thank you for being being our victor. We thank you for being our substitute and our savior and our friend and our brother. And it is in your name we pray. Amen.